Well, as you've already uh, heard, as already has been mentioned, this morning we're starting a new eight-week series for the summer called Unsung Heroes. And as Brian said, I mean, would you agree that superheroes are all the rage in our culture right now? I checked this week, and just in the last three years, believe it or not, over 20 movies have been made about superheroes. Hollywood just can't keep up with the demand. So I thought this morning, just to get our juices flowing a little bit on this whole idea of heroes, I would give you a little bit of a quiz. So I'm going to show a picture of a superhero, and I just want you to blurt it out. I know it's, well, it's not early. You're the 11 o'clock service. You can do this, right? We're, we're not, I know we don't normally do this as a church, but I'm looking for some audience uh, interaction here. You ready? First one, picture. Yes, next. Good. Next. Yeah, he's a little scary to me. I was always, <laughs> was always concerned about him. Number three. Batman. Number four. Batman. Was that the last? Okay, well, before I show you the last one, who the last one is really my favorite one. Extra points if you can get this one. You ready? That's Pastor Brian Schwarberg. Our family pastor dressed up as Samson, uh, teaching to the kids downstairs in our basement. Wouldn't you agree? That's the best hero right there. Now, don't clap for him. With all the buzz about heroes today, like Brian said, it asked us to let us to ask a question Who is a hero in God's eyes? Is a hero someone who can leap over a tall building in a single bound? Or is God looking for something else in the lives of his people that he would consider heroic? Now, i got to tell you, that's what we're going to be addressing these next eight weeks in this series called Unsung Heroes. Now, we called this Unsung Heroes for two reasons, and I want to explain that to you because I I think it will help you get into a frame of reference here. First of all, the, quote, heroes we're going to be studying are not even the typical heroes we would consider when we think about our faith. When we think about heroes in the Bible, for example, some of the names I think that probably come to our mind are people like Moses and Abraham and Daniel and David and Paul, you know, like the the big names. But in this series, what we're going to be looking at is some more obscure heroes in Scripture, some, catch this, unsung heroes of the Bible. People, as you can see up from this banner over here, like Ananias, Jonathan, Barnabas, Abigail. Uh, None of these people, by the way, if they were here this morning with us, would be comfortable with me calling them heroes, right? And yet, because they were willing to respond to God by faith in their lives, that's exactly what they became. In fact, if you're following on your notes, we want to remind us ourselves this morning, because they responded to God, they made a heroic impact. And can I just say this right up front? I know you're still getting situated. You may not be listening 100% right now. This is so, so important as we start an eight-week series. We say this every time we do a character study. I'm going to say it again and again. None of these people would have said that they were the heroes, right? Who would they have said is the hero in their life? It's God. When we do a character study, we're studying also the heroic character of God and his work in the lives of his people, what we're really seeing is how they respond to God in their life. God is the hero. And that leads us to the second reason we call this unsung heroes. You see, what we're going to be looking at in the lives of these people are certain qualities and traits that God considers to be heroic, but would not be considered heroic in our day and age. 
When we think of heroes, we think of things like x-ray vision, shooting spider webs out of my wrists, or super strength. But are those the thing God considers heroic? And of course the answer is no. God is looking for qualities and characteristics to come out of his people. And so the whole purpose of us studying their lives is to see we too can begin to display these heroic qualities in our lives. And so that, uh, our purpose for this series, if you're following on your notes, we're going to come back to this again and again. Our purpose is we want to redefine hero. We're going to redefine what a hero is, who a hero is. And if you're on your notes, we're going to discover that a hero is a person who by faith, that's pretty important, who by faith in who? God. It was their faith in God. Answers God's call to, and we're going to look at eight ways these eight people answered God's call in a specific way in their lives. And obviously, our hope of that is as we learn from them, we too can answer God's call to that specific thing in our lives. Okay, so that's where we're going in the next eight weeks. And I'm just going to ask us if we could pray right now, invite God to work, not just this morning, but as we lay this series before his altar, we want to invite him into that, don't we? So let's join together as a church family and just pray for what he might be able to do in these next eight weeks in our church family. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge right now, right here in the very beginning of this series, that you're the hero. That all of these people who we're going to be looking at would say that exact same thing. When we think about Jesus and the fact that he became God in human flesh and he laid his life on the altar for us so that we could receive power from on high, live in step with the Holy Spirit, be free as we just discovered in Galatians. That is an amazing thing. And now you call us to live that out in different ways. And so I pray over, as a church family, we pray over these next eight weeks that you would use them to encourage us, yes, but most of all, to bring you glory, that your name would be exalted and lifted high. And everyone agreed and said, amen. Amen. So let's, without further ado, take a look at the first unsung hero. This is one of my personal heroes. In fact, you're going to get to hear all five of the pastors speak on one of their heroes in this series. Another thing I'm excited about, but you can find the story of this hero in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bible, you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible. Acts 9 is about four-fifths of the way back. You'll come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts is the very next book of the Bible there. And turn to chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, as we say every week, we'd love it if you grab one of the Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you. Be a first-hander in this story. You can find this story on page 765. We are going to be looking at an unsung hero by the name of Ananias. Ananias. Now, as you're turning to Acts 9, you've got to realize when most people think of Acts 9, Ananias isn't the first name that comes to mind. In fact, Acts 9 records perhaps the most significant and important conversion in all of church history, right? It's the conversion of Saul later to become the Apostle Paul. Do you remember him? We just did a 10-week series in a letter that he wrote to the churches of Galatia. Paul, the Apostle Paul. In fact, believe it or not, if you remember way back when, I even spoke on Acts 9 in the second message in that series in Galatians. But today, we're going to look at Acts 9 from a totally different perspective. I don't want us to read it from Saul's perspective. 
I want to introduce you to a little-known character by the name of Ananias and pay close attention to the part he plays in God's plan, in Saul's life, and honestly, ultimately ours as well. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the different books of the Bible, like what's this Acts thing? Acts is the story of the early church. It's the recorded story of the early church. Jesus has just ascended into heaven, and he promises his disciples that he's going to send his Holy Spirit, right? In Acts chapter 2, that's recorded. The Holy Spirit comes, and these cowards who are hiding away in an upper room are suddenly emboldened to go preach Christ crucified in the streets of Jerusalem. And thousands of people are coming to repentance and believe in Christ. It's an amazing thing. But just like they were when Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God, the religious leaders of the day didn't like it so much. They didn't like these Jesus followers so much. In fact, perhaps the greatest anti-Jesus follower was a guy by the name of Saul. Now I know when we think of Saul, we so often fast forward to who he becomes later in life, Paul, but let's remind ourselves how ruthless and brutal this man really was. He had made it his life mission to destroy the followers of Jesus, and he truly thought this was a work that God had called him to do. In fact, two chapters earlier in Acts 7, Scripture records the first martyr, right? Stephen. In fact, we're going to hear a sermon on Stephen. I can't wait for it. It's a great name, isn't it? (laughs) But in Acts 8, verse 1, very significant verse here, it says these words, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Saul was the big man on the totem pole at that stoning, and basically he sanctioned it all. He says, I give my approval of this stoning of Stephen. His goal is to destroy these followers of Jesus. In fact, he took this so far. Look at what it says in Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and that's what Christians were called at first. Isn't that great? I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. The way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Gosh, think about this. We, we, going from Damascus, or from Jerusalem to Damascus, isn't like going from Springfield to Chatham. That's a 140-mile journey that Paul, Saul, is willing to take. Because so much does he believe in this mission of persecuting, imprisoning, killing Christians. He goes and seeks the approval and he travels 140 miles, right? I mean, it's not like a quick plane ride. This is serious business for him. He's got a plan. And yet, as we know, God has a different plan, doesn't he? God has a different plan for Saul. In fact, let's see God's plan start to unravel in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Can we pause the story here for a minute? I was thinking about it again this week because obviously I was studying for this. And the thing that Saul's conversion reminds me over and over again, and I want to remind you about it as well, if you're following on your notes, is that no one, 
No one, no matter how far from God they might be or we might think they are, is out of the reach of God's grace. No one is out of the reach of God's grace. Saul, the murderer of God's people. God has a plan for him, doesn't he? He pursues Saul. And can I just tell you something? You probably have experienced this. When God pursues a person, that person's going to know it, aren't they? When God pursues you, you know he's coming after you. In fact, I hope you realize the only reason that you and I are here this morning is because of God's pursuit of us. We like to think that it was our decision to follow Christ that led us to this point. But i got to tell you, friends, way before that moment happened, way before I recognized my sin and I turned from it, and by faith I received Christ as my Savior, way before that God pursued us, didn't he? One of my favorite poems of all time, and yeah, I read poems sometimes, was written by a famous Christian by the name of Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. Have any of you heard of it or read it? Go look it up. But Francis talks about how he was running from God. He's trying to flee God's presence. You know, anything but God. Don't, I don't want anything to do with God. But God is the hound of heaven. And he pursued him, and he pursued him, and he pursued him until finally he got on his knees and surrendered his life to Christ. How many of you know that? Even those of us who are Christians and we walk away for a time, he'll come after us. He's coming after us. He's the hound of heaven because no one is out of the reach of God's grace. And Paul's story reminds us ultimately about this fundamental truth. We've got to recognize this, the fundamental truth about our God. If you're on your notes, God is always at work bringing lost people to himself. It's like God's thing. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, God set in motion his plan for redemption. Jesus himself said the reason he came, let's look at this on Luke 19.10, read it out loud with me. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's God's work in this world to restore broken things, to bring to light things out of darkness. And this mission would become Paul's life calling as well. But interestingly, Paul's conversion isn't just about Paul. For some reason or another, God is also working in the life of another person who he is about to invite to join him to work in Saul's life. Let's read verses 10 and 11 out loud together on our notes. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. I'll continue in verse 12. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now let's pause here for a minute. I've got to be totally honest and upfront with you right now. Not much is known about Ananias. In fact, other than Acts 22.12, this is the only time he's ever mentioned in Scripture. And the only reason he's mentioned in Acts 22.12 is because Paul's telling his testimony. So we don't know a whole lot about him, but what do we learn from Acts 9 about Ananias? If you're following on your notes, we learn that Ananias was a disciple, 
a disciple of Jesus Christ, living in Damascus, right? Who was invited to join God's work. He was invited to join God's work. And what is God's work? We just saw it. God loves nothing more than to bring lost people to himself. To restore broken things. To redeem, restore, renew. To revive as we sang, right? And God invites this little-known disciple named Ananias to take part in that in Saul's life. And as we see here, is joining God in his work always easy? Ananias, I want you to go and pray for Saul. And I love how God is very specific. Saul of Tarsus, good try. I know what you're going to do, you know, get, get out of this. Other Saul, right? No, Saul of Tarsus, go pray for him. He's seen a vision of you coming. And I'm going to read verse... 13 and 14, how I think the rest of it went down here. Uh, Lord, <laughs> I've heard a lot about this guy. And all he's done to harm the people in Jerusalem. I actually know why he's coming to Damascus, do you? <laughs> he's coming here to arrest all who call on your name and I call on your name, Lord. I mean, don't you think that's how it went down? Uh, Lord, are we talking about the same Saul here? Yep, Saul of Tarsus. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, just put yourself in his shoes for a minute. I bet you Ananias knew widows because of Saul. He knew some widows. I'll bet you some of his friends were thrown into prison because of Saul. For Ananias to go to Saul would essentially be like giving himself up to the police, right? So why in the world would he ever do it? Well, because of verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, what does it say? Go. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He went because God said go. In fact, look at verse 15, his response in verse 17, excuse me. Then Ananias, what does it say? Went. God said go. Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Despite some initial concerns, a little bit of protest, Ananias goes. Immediately. He responds to God and he goes. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, I don't know what your mind does when you're reading this on your own or even hearing it right now, but my mind tries to put myself into these scenes and I just love that. I think this is one of the scenes we need to really put ourselves into to feel and smell and grasp you know, think about it from Ananias' perspective. Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine the walk from his house down Straight Street, as it's called? Okay, I can do this. I can do this. And it says he enters into the house. I guarantee he was shaken. It says he places his hands on them. And I'm wondering if it was a little bit more like this. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to make sure this isn't a trap of some sort. 
places his hands on him, and friends, what is the first words out of his mouth? Brother. Brother Saul. Now let's put ourselves in Saul's shoes. Can you imagine that? It gives me the chills to think that the very person I had come to throw into prison, the people I hated most and I was their greatest enemy, the very first words out of his mouth were brother. That's part of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You know that, right? The cross, as we have sometimes said, is not just a vertical transaction between us and God where we've received the forgiveness of sins. Yes, that is one part of the cross, but Jesus' vision for the cross was so much grander than that. There's a horizontal aspect to it as well and how we now relate to one another, right? There is no race, there is no ethnicity, there's no social status, there is no class. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are brothers and sisters in God's family because of Christ's work on the cross. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. It's a powerful powerful scene he prays for him and immediately he receives back his sight it says and he's filled with the power of the holy spirit just like all the other people who had received christ and all of us who still receive him today and then it says he's baptized and who do you think baptized him doesn't say specifically but i'm pretty sure we can infer that ananias was the one who baptized the greatest enemy the church has known and just like that Ananias leaves the scene never to be heard from again. He's gone. As for Paul, as the old saying goes, the rest is history. And in many ways, what I want you to hear this morning is it's our history. You and I are literally the fruit of Acts chapter 9. Did you see God's mission for Paul? He was to go and speak the gospel, to become the apostle to the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? We just learned about this in Galatians. Anybody who's not... I'm going to guess that's most of us in this room. We're the fruit of Acts chapter 9, and God chose to use Ananias as a part of that. He didn't have to use Ananias, did he? He could have restored his sight on his own. He could have given Paul a a vision about what his mission was going to be, but that's not how God works. He invited Ananias to join him in his work in Saul's life. And because Ananias did, he got to witness this amazing transformation. Beyond doubt, Ananias is one of the heroes, the forgotten unsung heroes of the Christian church. You may not even have known who he was until today. And that's the beauty of the way our God works. For the remaining time this morning, I'm going to talk about four takeaways we can have about, from Ananias' life, and we can apply this stuff to our lives as well. I really believe it. All right, are you ready? Things we can learn from Ananias. Number one, if you're following, God still invites disciples to join him in his work. God still invites disciples to join him in his work. You know this about God by now, don't you? That God has always and will always be involved in this world. From the very beginning, he's the creator. He's never been absent from it. He's intimately involved in what's taking place in human history. In fact, when you read the Bible, what we're reading is God's redemptive work in and among his people. And yet, the great mystery beyond mysteries to me is that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible and still today, if you're following on your notes, God chooses to work through people 
to accomplish his purposes. God chooses to work through people to accomplish his purposes. I mean, it could go down the list. It could be Noah, Moses, David, Abraham, Jonah, Daniel, Peter, or an unsung hero like Ananias. God loves nothing more. As Henry Blackaby so powerfully says, God invites his people to join him in his work in this world. Amen. That's what he does. And we so badly need to be reminded of this today. You so badly need to be reminded of this today. It's so sad to me that we have reduced Christianity down to accepting Jesus as my Savior and getting my ticket to heaven. That's the starting point of your life in Christ. There's a whole adventure waiting for us after that decision. In fact, on your notes, the call to salvation, and by that I just mean that decision, when God pursued you, you got on your knees, repented of your sin, received Christ as your Savior, the call to salvation is also a call to be on mission with God. You are on mission with God. The decision to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is a decision to join him in his work of redemption in this world. This isn't just for pastors. I don't do God's work and you just get to listen to it. No, no, no. This is for everyone. Anyone who is a disciple of Jesus is called to join him in his work in this world. I mean, the most famous words on this is from Matthew 28. Jesus, after finishing the work that only he could do, the cross, the resurrection, none of us could do that, but God did it for us. But after he did that, he spoke these words to his disciples, and they're still the words that we need to hang on to today. Our purpose as a church, as his people, are these in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only he could do that. But here's what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's a pretty big mission, isn't it? The world. Go. Same words, by the way, he said to Ananias. Go! Go into the world! That's a pretty amazing truth to get my my head around. God is going to invite me into that mission. He already has. The moment I received him, I become involved in his mission of redemption. And by the way, when I say the word redemption, here's what I'd like you to think. Not just, it is part, not just evangelism, not just sharing my faith. That's a huge part of it. But in the Bible, redemption is this holistic idea of things like justice. God cares about justice. He cares about the poor. He cares about the marginalized. In fact, when we think of the word redemption, all we really need to do is look at the life of Jesus Christ and say, I should be doing the same things he was doing. That's the mission he's called us to. That's insane to me. Every one of us in this room, though, every one of us in this room has been invited to join him on that mission. One of the reasons I love Ananias, one of the reasons is because when I used to read Acts chapter 9, don't tell me this isn't how you responded when you read stories like this too. I used to say, well, I'm no Paul. What does this have to do with me? I've never been blinded by light. I've never heard an audible voice from heaven. I mean, that'd be great. And so what has happened is that we put certain people up on pedestals and we say they're the super spiritual ones 
and I'm just like the nobody. It reminds me when I tried out for uh, the basketball team in junior high. You got to know something. I was only five feet at the most in junior high, believe it or not. And I wasn't very good at basketball. They had an A team and a B team, and quite honestly, my goal was to make the B team. And I made it. I was the last person picked for the B team of our junior high basketball team. And you know what that means, right? I sat the bench the whole year. And I think that a lie Satan wants you to believe that is infested in churches across America right now is that's how God's kingdom works. There's A teams, there's B teams, and then they're sitting on the bench, and that's me. It's not how it works. There's no A team. There's no B team. We are all part of God's team, right? There ain't no sitting on the bench in God's kingdom. There ain't no bench warmers. Ephesians 2.10 says this way better than I ever could. In fact, I really liked the way Eugene Peterson put it in his paraphrase, the message. So can we read that out loud together on our notes? It says, He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Now listen, my work isn't the same work as your work. But he's got to work for you. He's got to work for every single one of us, and he is inviting us to join him in that work. Now I know the question because, well, how do I know what my work is? Great question. I think we make it too complicated. Sometimes I think it just comes down to waking up every morning with eyes to see life from God's perspective. How does God see my children? And I respond how he would see them. How does God see my spouse? How does God see my neighbors? How does God see my coworkers? How does God see this interaction, that interaction, this place? It's starting to see life through God's eyes. Now, we have to learn how to do that, and I'm going to talk about how we do that in a minute. But for now, let me just say, I believe with all my heart that right now in your life, in your little bubble, there are opportunities waiting for you every single day like Ananias had. It's just, it's just what God does. There are opportunities waiting for you every day to join God, and i got to tell you, they're not always big things. In fact, they're very rarely big things. I'm not talking about, you know, converting the entire airplane. I'm talking about things like when you know your kid needs some encouragement or your grandkids need some encouragement. You join God and his work in their life, and you do it. You speak a word of encouragement. It's praying for the friend who may be going through a really rough patch in life. It's mowing your neighbor's lawn because they just had surgery, bringing a meal. I mean, could I go on and on and on, right? God is working in people's lives all around us. We just have to have the eyes to see and then join him in doing it. Second lesson we can learn from Ananias is linked to that first one. We've talked about this a hundred times at Cherry Hills. If you've been here for any length of time, you're probably getting sick of it, but I'm going to emphasize it again and again and again and again. You're going to fill it in for me. I want you to tell me, God uses what? Ordinary. Ordinary people to achieve great things. God uses ordinary people to achieve great things. I started this morning with a little quiz about superheroes. Can we do another one? I'm going to show a picture up on the screen. I want you to just yell out as loud as you can who this person is. You ready? Let's go with the first one. No, close. He looks a lot like Martin Luther. Good try. 
No one? Oh, come on. All right, next. No? Who? Nope. Okay, last one. Come on, guys. Really. <laughs> come on, you failures. I didn't know who any of these people were either, okay? Put the first one back up. That is a man by the name of Johann Staupitz. And he happened to be the man who led Martin Luther to faith in Christ. Not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther. Let's put up the second one. This is a guy by the name of Edward Kimball. And listen, you want to talk about ordinary. This guy was a shoe salesman. And yet he just happened to be the spiritual mentor of D.L. Moody. And that last one, I knew you were close. Some of you probably know this is Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham is a little-known preacher evangelist who happened to be speaking the night that Billy Graham gave his life to Christ. I'm going to mention another one. We, we sat, talked about this in our creative planning team. I could have mentioned a hundred of people in this very church family. I'm going to mention Jerry Quick. Anybody know Jerry? He's over here. He would be embarrassed. I said his name right now. He is embarrassed. Because he's just an ordinary guy. He'd be the first to tell you that. And yet, many years ago, God said, hey, join me in the work that I'm already doing in Juarez, that's already going to get done in Juarez, with or without you. And because Jer Jerry joined him, we now have Amigos in Christos, which is the largest ministry that we support outside of our church. And God's working in Juarez, isn't he? And Jerry would be the first to say, I'm just an ordinary guy. Yes, exactly. That's what he loves doing. It's exactly what he loves doing. That's why I love Ananias. Just an ordinary disciple, never to be heard from again. And yet, because he was faithful, he played a part in God reaching millions of people through the Apostle Paul. You can make the excuse still that I'm no Paul. Put him up on the pedestal, that's fine. But you can't make the excuse anymore that you might not be an Ananias. You might be an Ananias, right? We might be an Ananias. When I used to read the story of Saul's conversion, it always confused me. He's like, God, why didn't you send Peter? Or one of the super apostles to pray over this really important new convert. God's like, because I don't do that. I like taking ordinary and doing extraordinary through those things. Because if you're following again on your notes with God, our impossibilities are his possibilities. In fact, I bet you you've realized it at this point in your life, that God loves nothing more than to push us out of our natural abilities and our comfort zones. Because when he does that, and when we respond to that, we recognize only God. Only God could have done that. And we give him glory for that. I'll share a personal unsung hero for me in my life. His name is Mike Giuliani. He was a professor of mine at Westmont College. And he happened to be the professor who was teaching Public Speaking 101, which was a required course, and I'm just going to be a little bit honest with you right now. I hated it. <laughs> I vowed I will never, ever stand up in front of people and speak. <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with that in my life. I'm not kidding, and I was terrible at it. And yet after class one day, he pulled me aside, and probably words he'll, he never remembers even saying today. But he was a little bit like an Ananias in my life. He said, Steve, I've never said this, this to a student, but I think you could be a great speaker if you put your heart 
and your mind to it. I'm not standing here claiming I'm a great speaker because I am far from that. What I am claiming to you is God loves nothing more than to take our weaknesses and make them his strength for his glory. He's going to do that with you. He's going to do that with you. Third lesson we can learn from Ananias is that in order to be used, we must first be able to listen. Let's not gloss over this. If we really want to be used and join God in his work, we must be able to listen. Notice in the story, we see God speaking to Ananias and his first response is, yes, Lord, here I am. It's like he was waiting for it or something. Crazy. It's like he expected that God might potentially invite him to join him in his work and activity in this world. It reminds me of a story of a, a man who used to own a, remember when they had ice houses? I actually don't remember this. But they had ice houses because they didn't have refrigerators that plugged into a wall, so you had to have a block of ice delivered to your house, and they would store it in these huge ice houses. Well, a man ran one of those, and he lost his really, really expensive watch in his ice house, and he spent hours, 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 hours looking for that watch, and he could never find it. Until a little 12-year-old boy went in one day, he laid down on the floor and came out two minutes later with the watch. And the guy's like, what? How did you find my watch? He says, well, when I laid down, I was quiet. And I just listened for the ticking. And as soon as I heard the ticking, I knew exactly where the watch is. We so need to hear this as Americans right now. We are so busy. Our culture is so loud. There is so much stuff for us to do, 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 do that we've lost the ability. We've lost the ability to hear God speaking to us. I love how somebody once said, don't just do something, stand there. It's hard for us. It's hard for us. I have a lot of people, you know, ask me today, especially younger generations, you know, like, well, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Or this stuff seems so foreign, God inviting me to join him in his work. I mean, what, how does that even work? Is he, like, speaking through visions still and dreams? I mean, what is going on here? I, I want to, before I answer that, let me just mention a story. You know when somebody calls you, and they don't even have to say their name, and you know immediately by their voice who it is? And then somebody else calls you, and you're hoping and praying that they say their name because they don't, and you're like, oh, I don't want to ask but I have no idea who you are. What's the difference between those two things? You know the first person really well, right? You have a deeper relationship with that person, and so you're able to recognize their voice. Do you see the connection here? God may not speak to us through visions or dreams, although I think that, that may still happen. But I would tell you, if we want to begin to listen to God and his voice in our lives here, if you're following on your notes, today God primarily speaks through his word, through that book you have in your lap right now, the Bible, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit. The promptings of the Holy Spirit, whatever you might want to write there. This is how God primarily is going to speak to us. So, question, are you saturating yourself in God's word? Do we really believe your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path? I mean, that means he's going to show us things. 
We're going to know what his work is in this world, and we're going to follow him in that. And are we learning to walk daily, as we just talked about in the series in Galatians with the Holy Spirit, you know, being in step with him, being aware, as Jeff says, about the tickers that go across our mind in a daily basis. You know the ones like, pray for her right now. Forgive enough of this bitterness. Share about me. He's open to it right now. Take the step. Be bold. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, the leadings and promptings of the Holy Spirit. But in order to learn how to walk in that, we've got to spend time knowing his voice. Fourth lesson we take from Ananias is if we want to be used, we must respond immediately in obedience. Immediately in obedience. I hate to break it to you, but God is going to fulfill his purposes in this world with or without you. With or without me. Amen? He's going to do what he's going to do. But I want to join him. And joining him requires me immediately responding in obedience to his promptings, to his leading in my life. I love, it says, go Ananias, verse 17. He went. And because he went, he got to witness one of the most amazing things probably in history. And his response is an example to us of how we should respond to God when he's clearly leading us to join him in his work somewhere. And yeah, I hate to tell you, there's going to be a cost to it sometimes. It's going to be difficult and hard and challenging and unsafe even maybe. Man, that's when true life begins to happen. You know, we say here we're declaring war on shallow Christianity with ourselves. Can I say that one difference I would say between shallow Christianity and what we're talking about here is, you know, shallow Christianity means I'm involved with God. I come to church. I do all the right stuff. But what we're looking at, what Jesus was looking at, is that we would be committed to God and his purposes, even if it might cost us dearly. That's that's going to be embarrassing, Jesus. You know, the difference between involvement and commitment is the difference between a breakfast of bacon and eggs, right? The hen is involved, the pig is committed. (laughs) Jesus is looking for committed disciples. (laughs) And there's a cost sometimes. But you know... Here's what I've discovered, and maybe you will too. I think so many of us say, Lord, I want you to bless me. But, here are my stipulations. We might not say that out loud, because we're going to be struck by lightning or something, but that, in my heart, that's what I'm thinking. Or we say, Lord, here I am. Send her. <laughs> but have you gotten to the point where you realize it's, The true blessings in life come when we are obeying God and his call in our lives. Think about it in terms of Ananias. He obeyed. He went into a dangerous situation. There could have been the cost of his life. And yet because he did, he got to see right before his eyes the transformation of the greatest enemy of the church. That'd be so cool. And because he did, don't miss this, partly because he did, we're here today. Think about that blessing. His obedience is still being felt today. We experience the ripple effects. As I close, I've been trying to hammer one point home this morning. We've talked about four lessons, but the big idea here, I want you to get this. Do you believe that your life is a vital piece of God's redemptive puzzle? 
Or do you still believe the lie that he can't use someone ordinary like you, someone ordinary like me? Friends, God has a purpose for you, period. The question is, are you going to join him in that purpose and in that work? You know, he loves human beings. God is love. He loves human beings. It's why he sent his son, and he's so passionate about us that he's still pursuing us today. He's still the hound of heaven. And the question is for us this morning is, are we going to join him in his pursuit? Because that's his invitation to every single one of us in this room. In fact, let's redefine hero this morning. A hero, as we've been learning in our definition, a hero is a person who by faith answers God's call to, what have we learned today? Be available to join God in his work in this world. That's a hero. In God's eyes, to be available daily just to join God in his work of redemption in this world. God has something in store for your life. Do you believe that your ordinary, boring life is a vital piece to his plan? Sorry, I didn't mean to say your life is boring, but mine is a lot of times. But that's where God loves to step in. Are you listening? Do you know his voice? Are you obeying immediately when he asks you to? If you are willing to join him, his invitation is clear, friends. I believe as we step out of this place this morning, I get fired up about this stuff because I'm still naive about it. I believe we can step out of this place and God's going to have all kinds of opportunities for us if we have the eyes to see and if we obey. I believe it. The only question is as we close, am I available to join God in his work in this world? Are you? Let's pray. Lord, we remind ourselves once again it's not by our power or our wisdom or our cleverness or anything we have to offer, to be honest with you, that's going to change a life, that's going to shine light or salt in this world. It is simply because you go before us that you're already at work in this world, and you always will be and always are, and yet there's this incredible opportunity each of us have this morning to join you in that work. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here. We're in this together. You have given us a great mission. I pray that we would defeat the lie our enemy wants us to believe, that we have no part in that. You are reminding us today that all of us play a part in your redemption plan. Help us to be able to walk out of this building into our worlds, into our communities, our neighborhoods, our work environments, our schools with the ability to see where you're working and join you in that work. It's only because of who you are and what you've done, Jesus, that we can. But we offer our lives to you now for your sake, for your kingdom and for your glory. And we all agreed and said, Amen. I love those last lines because in my opinion, that's what it all comes down to. Just step by step, day by day, watching where God is already at work in this world and joining him in that, being available to what he's already doing all around us. God has a purpose for your life and for my life. Will you join him in that as we leave today? I'm going to invite those of our prayer team to come forward. If you need someone just to pray for you, to pray over you, as we leave this morning, we want to make ourselves available for that. 
But for the rest of us, I pray that we remind ourselves as we step out of these doors into whatever it is we're going to face this week, that God is already going before us. He is coming behind us. And he's inviting us to join him in this incredible mission. We get to be a part of that. Amen? So just like he said to Ananias, I'm going to close by saying it to you. Go. Go. Go.